Well, hi, this is David Thornburg, President and CEO of the Committee of 70, Philadelphia's longstanding nonpartisan advocate for better government. Uh, and uh, welcome to Studio C70, which is our webcast and podcast platform, exploring ways in which we can strengthen our local democracy. I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Satulo, our civic engagement consultant and co-founder of the Pennsylvania Project on Civic Engagement. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, David. And our special guest today is uh, Dave Daly, uh, who is a colleague that we've um, uh, met with and, and uh, learned from the last couple of years. Dave, welcome to you from you in uh, Northampton. Is that where you are? That's right. Hi, David. Hi, Chris. Hey. So you may have encountered uh, Dave's work before, his most recent work, uh, which uh, those of us who have been uh, shouldering, uh, putting shoulder to the wheel on the gerrymandering issue came across him in his book, uh, Rat Fucked. We can say that because we're not constrained by the norms of, uh, of uh, any particular media, uh, which was a, a searing indictment of how um, uh, the, the country and its constituent states have been, have been gerrymandered uh, over the last uh, few cycles. And Dave, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say uh, your new book, Unrigged, feels like uh, the positive response to, uh, to Ratfucked. If Ratfucked was the negative, this is the positive. That sounds like a, a right way to place the origin story. I think that's right. I think it is sort of the hopeful, optimistic story about how Americans battle back. Um, as you guys know, as folks who've been working so hard and talking so much on this on this issue, it can be depressing to go out and talk about gerrymandering all the time. You, um, you know, I would find myself sometimes just sucking the air out of a room. Uh, and I had to for my own good, but also I think to try to provide some kind of a, a service for people who wanted to find a way forward. I wanted to tell stories about people who were doing just that. Um, I found it really personally inspiring because these are big structural barriers that both parties have created for their own institutional power. And to tilt at, at those windmills, it's not easy to do. There is no guarantee of success. It's really hard work. Uh, and yet people were taking it on. Yeah. Uh, we can get into some of the individual examples, but I mean, I just found it so moving to go out and to join Katie Fahey and Voters Not Politicians in Michigan as a Facebook post creates a redistricting revolution that wins with more than 60% of the vote at the ballot to go down to Florida and join Desmond Mead and that really mighty moral coalition of, of black and white, left and right, um, that churchgoers and former and former felons all united to, to bring voting rights back to the 1.4 million former felons there who had paid their debt. And, um, and that wins down there with 64% of the vote. Or to go out to Idaho and cross the state um, in 
an RV just a little bit bigger than the the van. The Volkswagen. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yes, <laughs> um, but they did something similar. They they bought an RV. They called it the Medicaid Express, and they determined to try to um, bring healthcare and kind of close the gap for the seventy thousand folks in Idaho who didn't have uh, who kind of fell in between the state exchange and Obamacare and um, you know nonpartisan stuff. You know, good government issues, electoral reform issues, um, questions about how to help your neighbor, but issues in which our political process it just wasn't working um, to bring, you know, good resolution to any of this. And when it got put to the ballot, it didn't matter whether it's Idaho or whether it's Michigan or Missouri or Florida, red state, blue state, purple state, these issues won 60, 70 percent of the vote. Americans are united behind this idea that elections ought to be fair and that, and that gerrymandering is cheating. Yep. Well, a uh, couple of thoughts. You're already giving us lots to, to chew on, but I, I would say you're talking to two people who live in the land of Rocky. So if there's one place that appreciates a good underdog and a good fight, <laughs> and of course, uh, also remembering that this is where it all began way back when. Um, but go pick up one of your favorite stories and, uh, and, and take us a little deeper into the action. And, and I'll just remind folks listening or watching that about a year ago, uh, Chris Satulo, who's on here, uh, and you did a terrific podcast that sort of previewed some of these stories, maybe as you were wrestling the book to the ground. Uh, so we encourage folks to go look at our uh, Studio C70 podcast. But, but pick one or two most poignant, most illustrative stories and kind of take us a little deeper into the action. Um, I love the story in Michigan. I know you guys are working on redistricting there, so I feel like that's always a good one just because it it starts with a 27-year-old woman who two days after the 2016 election is afraid of what's going to happen at Thanksgiving in her house um, because there's there's Trump voters, there's there's Clinton voters, there's still angry Bernie voters, um, and she's just imagining that there's going to be turkey and mashed potatoes flying through the air. And um, so she's looking for something that she thinks everybody can get behind. Um, and she settles on gerrymandering because it is fundamentally cheating. And she goes to Facebook and says, how about if we do something about gerrymandering in Michigan? Um, if you want to join me, you know, post here. Um, and this uh, Facebook post, uh, it, it ends up creating an organization with 4,000 volunteers. They go out, they collect 425,000 signatures to get on the ballot and to amend the state's constitution. They have the initiative there, so they're able to you know, do that, um, which is an advantage that a lot of states unfortunately don't have, as you, as you sadly know. Um, but, you know, and then they win with over 60% of the vote, and you're going to have an independent commission redrawing the lines in Pennsylvania in in 2021. I'm sorry, in, um, I got ahead of myself there. You're going to have an independent commission drawing the lines in Michigan in 2021, one of the most gerrymandered states in the country over the last uh, couple of cycles. Um, and it wasn't just Michigan that had this happen in 2018. You had Ohio, Utah, Colorado, and Missouri all adopt um, some form of 
redistricting reform that will make things, you know, at least a little bit better in all of the, in all of those states. And then take some of the power away from the partisans and the politicians and the insiders and take it out of those back rooms and um, make it a little bit more transparent and public. Um, you know, I find that I find that incredibly inspiring. I mean, gerrymandering used to be this wonky issue that, you know, nobody uh, that put people to sleep and it was maps and it was um, a long, boring word, you know, and now it's the stuff of, you know, John Oliver jokes and, um, and it can start a revolution in a state. And that is amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask Chris to weigh in a little bit uh, right now because uh, just a little of our own story, which you were good enough to profile in, in, in your book. But yesterday we had a, a virtual map day celebrating winners of our Draw the Lines uh, competition. And maybe, Chris, you could just re sort of reflect a little bit about what we've learned and what uh, energy we've been able to unleash on this process because uh, I think it's very much in keeping with just what you're talking about, Dave. Yeah, well, our event yesterday was very much uh, an example of the moment. Um, we had scheduled this as a real-world event in the Capitol Rotunda on March 18th, so our timing was spectacular uh, on that. So obviously we had to postpone that event. And then it occurred to us that, well, if we do it virtually, actually more people from around the state can take part than we're ever going to make it to the Capitol on a weekday. And uh, we actually had any number of lawmakers who were saying they were gonna sit in or have a staff or look in as we introduced our winners and heard from them and heard from Carol Kuna-Holmes, as you know, Fair Districts PA. Uh, and then a couple of things happened. I mean, we had more than 200 people on the Zoom event, but um, in their infinite wisdom, um, the Republican leaders of the General Assembly decided to call an emergency session to review legislation that would basically say um, the state should reopen for business despite the virus. So everybody felt they had to go and fight that legislation on the floor. So we lost our legislative speakers and audience. Um, we still had more than 200 people. We had our mappers who gave really, really, uh, really smart and moving testimony for what they learned from doing their own maps and their hopes for the future. And then we got Zoom bombed by Russian bots and trolls. So we had the whole package in there all together. Uh, so it was it was quite a, quite an experience, but overall positive, David. Um, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. There you go. Well, but David, Dave, go ahead. I was going to say along the way, and we made this point yesterday. We've given these new digital tools, which until now had been only in the hands of the operatives. We've got six thousand Pennsylvanians sitting down and drawing maps, contributing to the conversation keeping their representatives uh, on their toes and, and fighting for change. Uh, so uh, that's our little skirmish uh, story added to your larger story. Uh, it's such an important story. You know, I mean, we, politicians have kept this process to themselves and they've tried to make it seem like it's technical and only you have to be an expert to do it. And in reality, you have to be a technical expert to draw the kind of partisan biased maps that right. these folks come up with. Um, if you want to draw a fair map, you can be a high school teacher and do it. You can be a high school student and do it. You can be a piano teacher in Pennsylvania 
and do it, as has been shown, you know. Um, you so can- David, one, one of our winners that went on yesterday and she got a chance to speak, Sarah Stroman, uh, she had won previously, so she wound up the challenge. So in drawing her map, she set a timer and she said, I'm only giving myself 90 minutes to draw this map, but I'm gonna beat the, um, the numbers of the map we got in 2011 for compactness, municipal splits, and, uh, and uh, competitiveness. And in 90 minutes, she drew a map that won her a $500 award. Not um, bad, right? I mean, this is, you only have to be a, a, a computer software genius if you're trying to draw lines that embed partisan advantage. If you're trying to do this on behalf of keeping communities together and keeping people represented, this is not all that hard or demanding or technical a process. Yeah, and the other thing we've we've learned and, and try to convey to people is it's still a values-based exercise and people have discovered that they really have to, the struggle comes when you want two things that are hard to do at the same time in a map, since, such as keep communities of interest together and uh, keep compactness, say. And, uh, but it's been a great lesson for people that it is actually a human and a communal activity. You can't just program an algorithm and say, go do it. Now they could be a tool to help you, but in the end, it's human judgment and human values that decide what makes fair. And we ought to have that conversation because it goes to the essence of what representation means. Um, and those are questions that people ought to sort out that partisans shouldn't be allowed to pervert to their own ends in closed rooms. Um, it's too important. Um, and what I love about giving people this software is that it forces those conversations that in many ways it kind of mimics the kind of politics we would like to have, right? You want people coming together to talk over these big questions and then to find a way to reach consensus together. Nobody gets everything mm -hmm. that they want, but they find that they can uh, balance all of these competing interests as best they can um, in a way that everybody can walk away feeling like they've made a contribution. Uh, Dave, I want to go back to your book, Unrigged, and the opening chapter where you sort of place us in the living room watching the results of the 2018 election. And I actually had the experience that you kind of described most people not realizing that Sure, I was watching what was happening with Senate and, and Congress, but I was also on my laptop looking for what was happening in Missouri and Utah and Florida and Michigan. And it, that was the delightful news. As you say, there were 16 uh, referenda or ballot questions on ballots around the country um, that had to do with election reform, voter rights, at the government ethics, and 15 out of 16 won. It was an extraordinary night for the good guys. But we, want, we wondered if you could talk a little bit about what's happened since. In any number of those states, in Florida, in Missouri, in, in Maine, you know, the empire has struck back. You know, there have been efforts essentially to nullify the will of the voters. So what's your take on all that activity since then, up to and including Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago? Well, listen, um, if one election or one rule um, 
being passed was enough to fix everything for everybody forever, we would have solved all of these voting questions with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments after the Civil War. Right. We would have fixed it with the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. None of that was enough. Um, and what happened on election night in 2008, as amazing and wonderful as it was for the good guys, is not enough. The battle over voting rights in this country is as old as the nation itself. And it's a conversation that, and a, a political fight that is going to endure probably forever. Um, what I think we've often thought, perhaps I think wrongly, is that voting rights is a continuum. It's a straight line of, of progress getting, getting better. Um, and I don't think that that is necessarily guaranteed to us. Um, you know, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King talked about the moral arc of the universe being long, but bending towards justice. And it doesn't bend by itself, you know? I mean, it bends when a, a Katie Fahey and voters, not politicians, and draw the lines and reclaim Idaho and all of these movements go out and grab that arc and kind of bend it in the direction of justice. Because if they don't, there's other people on the other side who've got a very different idea of sort of what um, the nation ought to look like. Um, and so what you've seen since 2018 has been some of the very same backlash and retrenchment that has kind of mirrored the uh, battle over voting rights. Um, Missouri, for example, has worked to really undo um, that amazing initiative there that would have really cleaned up government there and put um, a state a demographer in charge of the maps. Kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen, but um, I, it looks as if it may head back to the voters in 2020. Um, um, uh, Florida, most famously, I think, where 64% of the state backed that amazing initiative to restore voting rights to former felons. Uh, the, the gerrymandered legislature there essentially added a poll tax on top of it. That's going to get decided by the courts. There have been some positive rulings, um, although it will probably end up before the U.S. The Supreme Court, where the, the last decade of voting rights cases um, hasn't hasn't tended to be decided uh, in a way that I would mm -hmm. um, uh, support, but um, we will see what happens there. Um, uh, you know, Michigan, you had an effort by the Michigan Senate there itself, a pretty gerrymandered, to uh, try and make it more difficult for the independent commission there to be funded. Um, so, you know, politicians are always going to kind of monkey around with things. <laughs> they noticed that all of these initiatives worked, and in a lot of states, they made it harder for citizens to, to put initiatives on the ballot. What I think we have to remember is that none of this stuff ends after one election. Um, we've got to stay involved permanently. Um, keeping a democracy is really hard work. Um, and it needs to be a, you know, a constant endeavor. We cannot take our hands off of that arc. Yeah. Let me ask you uh, uh, this. You know, your book is a great source of inspiration about the, the Katie phase and all the stories that you tell. But at another level, um, 
for those of us who are sort of in this business, um, I've, I found some useful insights about how to choose the right tool from the toolkit. And you do a nice job of telling the stories of people with different uh, strengths and different skills and different backgrounds and perspectives and lawyers and mathematicians and organizers and activists and people who do communications and so forth. What's your um, insight as to, uh, and, 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 and also remarkably, you know, as in the story of Katie Faye, people who just learned incredibly fast on the job had no idea what she was doing. She said that. So um, what's your insight about how you observed people choosing the right tool at the right time, any wrong choices that folks made? You know, this is, uh, again, this, the story of societal change. It takes uh, different strains from, from different uh, segments of society. But I'm just curious what you learned from that. I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think the story of Michigan is that everybody has something to contribute to this. I mean, they were trying to build a grassroots movement from the ground up without any money, without any sense of how to do it out there. Um, and there were people who were woodworkers who wanted to be involved and they donated the clipboards that were needed and, and made the clipboards kind of custom sized to fit the unique legal paper size that the door knockers needed if they were going to go out and go door to door and get petitions signed. And you think that that's not a big deal, except those clipboards cost three, four, five dollars a piece if you're going to head down to Staples. And they had 4,000 volunteers, each of which was going to need a clipboard. Uh, that's a significant amount of money, which if you're starting out a movement, you say, well, I don't know where we're even going to get the money to send people out door knocking from. So maybe we can't do this. Everybody's got a skill to offer. You know, I mean, the amazing story out in Idaho um, of Reclaim Idaho, uh, it starts in a, in a little small town called Sandpoint, which is about as north in Idaho as you can possibly get. And the area has become sort of adopted by, um, um, you know, almost kind of ultra conservative preppers and um, folks who have escaped, you know, left wing California and, you know, drifted up uh, to their, their, um, you know, new Second Amendment land. Um, and um, it became almost impossible to pass a school levy in this town in order to keep the public schools open. And it was, you know, two or three times in a row this had gotten voted down, you know, more than two to one. Um, and some recent graduates, you know, one a doctor and one, um, you know, working on his PhD at Columbia in, in politics, um, a student of John Adams recognized that they had some skills that might help organize people. Um, he had read a lot of political science about, you know, movements that, that work. Um, and they took a weekend and they went back to their hometown and they helped organize people. Um, and they taught them sort of the art of persuasion and of door knocking. Um, and they set themselves a goal of going out and talking to 2,500 people over a few days. They fell just short of that goal, but it worked, right? And they, they ended up turning that vote around in town 
you know, not by changing the issue, but by going out and talking to people and sort of changing their minds. There's a, there's a very uh, entrepreneurial spirit that flows through your stories. It, uh, again, people willing to try things based on a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of uh, skills, and and uh, and off they go. A lot of you know false uh, starts and dead ends, and you, you know you back up and, and do over again. So uh, both of you are uh, career journalists, writers, longtime observers, and participants in the scene. So let me ask this question to both of you, as as the non-journalists in the crowd. Is this, is what you wrote about uh, Dave and, and what you read about Chris and what you've been part of, is this a moment of time or do you think we're on the cusp of a new wave of activism? Uh, uh, I'll ask Chris first, because you know, you've been, uh, as I said, a career journalist, so you've seen a lot come and go, but what, what's your take? I do think, and, and Dave talks about this in the book, there is a potentially unifying message that doesn't break down um, activism or working for the betterment of the community along ideological lines. And it's this notion that the system is broken, the fundamentals of the system are broken. Until we fix that, we can't fix all the other things we're worrying about um, or arguing about even. And that's the one unifying thread where almost any other issue is going to create some divisions. Um, so there, there's hopefulness there. Of course, no one knows what the how the moment we're in right now is going to end up affecting things. Yeah. But my hopeful take on it is that it has um, revealed so vividly and starkly what the consequences of some of the things we haven't been working on as a society are that. Um, it's going to be a task, as Dave said, it, this stuff doesn't happen automatically. You have to bend the uh, arc of history. But if people can find ways to articulate, and I think journalists could be part of this, articulate a nonpartisan, non-ideological, not steeped in Trump versus Biden way of just saying, we as a the society neglected to do some very important things and we've just paid a price for it, um, that could create a surge of non-ideological um, activism about some of these issues. We're just, the machine we use to address these problems is broken. And yeah. we've just paid a huge human price for the way in which the machinery is broken. Yeah. Dave? I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. You know, um, what I saw when I was out working on this book was that a new sort of civic torch had been lit amongst the American people and that there was this recognition that it was broken, as Chris explained, but also that if something was to be done about it, it was up to them. Um, and they circulated petitions and they knocked on doors and they started organizations and movements that um, people said might not make any difference at all, uh, that in some cases had very little chance of winning, that faced long odds uh, that we're going to have, you know, power structures lined up against them, looking to crush them, you know, I mean, you had the, you know, Koch brothers and DeVos money and, you know, lots of big money lined up against a lot of these people's reform movements. Uh, and they took them on anyway. 
they got out there and they did the work and they figured out how to do it. Uh, and in state after state, time after time, they carried the day. Yeah, I just, I was telling Chris, I just finished a book, which I, I suspect you might've come across called The Woman's Hour, which is about the fight to secure the 19th Amendment, uh, uh, affirming the right of women to vote in, in Tennessee. And it is a story of, of, of chaos and subterfuge and partisanship, and it's, it's messy and it took forever, but it sort of feels like this is what we do in this country. <laughs> this is what we do. Yeah. We don't have any choice. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. the system is is set up in a in a messy way. So we have avoided uh, neatly. We've talked for about a half an hour, but we none of us has uh, has uh, used the word partisanship yet. <laughs> um, we live in hyper hyper partisan times. The easy way to brush off all of these reform movements. Dave, and I'm sure you've heard this, is for disgruntled Republicans to say, these are people who were angry that Donald Trump won in 2016 and they're trying to exact payback. Um, what's your response to that? The problems in our democracy predate Donald Trump. Um, let me start here. Um, the reform movements that won in 2018 they won because Democrats, Republicans, and independents backed all of these movements. You don't win redistricting reform in Utah and Missouri without Republicans coming on board. You don't win voting rights for former felons in Florida with 64% of the vote without Republicans coming on board. You don't win Medicaid expansion in Idaho, you know, so, you know, the uh, color of Taylor Swift lipstick red, Idaho, without getting support from Republicans. Um, so I think in some ways we need to separate the partisanship that happens within the political system of elected Democrats and Republicans fighting with each other from the way that regular American citizens of all parties view these issues. Um, I think that there is more agreement than disagreement there on these important issues of, of fairness in our elections. Now, Dave said something a little while ago that I think is emblematic of the work that needs to be done to get out of that partisanship trap that you were mentioning, David. Uh, at some point he just said, Gerrymandering is cheating. And our whole effort in Draw the Lines, and I'm actually teaching a course this year at Penn about this kind of stuff, issue framing. It's all about finding a way to talk about an issue that gets it out of that familiar ideological context and connects with the core values that people feel viscerally. And most Americans feel viscerally that cheating is wrong. Look at what everybody was saying about the Houston Astros uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, a level of outrage that was kind of amazing. So if you come to people and um, say, I want to talk to you about people who've been cheating our democracy, they've been cheating you out of the right to vote, you're connecting with the value that people have. If you come in and say, I want to talk to you about how unfair it was that Republicans won 13 seats in Pennsylvania last time, you've lost much of the room. 
So it's all about understanding your audience and how you can connect with their values rather than just making the arguments you maybe as a partisan want to make. Um, And I think that's one of the problems we've had in Pennsylvania is um, not always has the messenger been right and not always has the argument been framed. But, you know, we traveled the state with Draw the Lines and talking about cheating worked. Showing people a picture of a pepperoni pizza and saying, well, how would you slice that for dinner? And then saying, here's how your representatives in Harrisburg would slice it. That worked. Um, Telling people to think of an election as a job interview and thinking about, you know, when have you ever known a job interview where the candidates got to dictate all the terms of the interview? Those things worked. Um, Getting too much into the arcane of how gerrymandering works or framing it as, you know, those Republicans are so unfair, that has never worked in my experience. So, but you have to be get really good at this stuff, which Katie Fahey, probably because, quote, she didn't know anything and she wasn't a political person, was so much better at it than, you know, certainly I was at Fort Steep for 40 years in Pennsylvania politics. I think all of that is exactly right. Um, uh, but I guess this is where I add my caution that um, the activities of partisans, especially in state legislatures around the country, uh, has been to put up barriers to the vote in an awful lot of, of states. And it starts with gerrymandering, and then it moves into surgically focused voter ID bills, and then it moves into efforts to sort of purge and manicure voter rolls and to close precincts and to, and to shut down days of early voting that they've studiously figured out the exact times at which the other, time, the other side votes and, mm-hmm. and, and move to curtail that. Um, there is some real ugliness around around voting in this country, and I really worry that we are creating a democracy deserts in a lot of states. Um, you know, states in which um, it's becoming harder and harder to vote, um, and then that there are other states in which it's becoming easier. You know, I mean, absentee balloting, early voting, online registration, automatic registration. Uh, and I worry that we're becoming two different nations on voting rights and that your access to the ballot and the ease with which you're able to fulfill this you know, fundamental notion um, depends on where you live. Um, and if you live in, in North Carolina or Wisconsin, it's, it's harder than it is if you live in Oregon or, or now Pennsylvania after some of the you know, incredible reforms that you all passed there. Um, And Pennsylvania is an amazing example because those reforms were, you know, bipartisan. Um, So, you know, I do think that it's, 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 um, it's proof that this can be bipartisan and nonpartisan and um, it can get done. Uh, Dave, uh, we we haven't mentioned uh, COVID-19 a lot today, but it clearly haunts the 2020 election. And it could cut either way on this issue of voting rights. Um, how, how do you think your way through that at this moment? I think we have to be really careful that we stop a public health crisis from blossoming into a constitutional crisis. And I worry that we're heading down that road. You know, um, it feels very much to me like 
it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to do the kind of traditional in-person voting that Americans have gotten used to. Um, the idea of you know standing in long lines um, and everybody voting on the same machine or at the same table with the same pen with you know lovely senior citizen retirees checking us all in um, it just doesn't seem like it is a a, a, a good idea it's not healthy it um, um, and in a number of cities and in a, a number of states it's probably just not going to be possible in November um, so I think we have to be thinking about how we safeguard that vote, and a big piece of that has to be vote by mail. The, the question that sort of ties those last two threads together is how do we talk about this as it, that's not colored by you know partisan red or partisan blue, which is let's just acknowledge our president is not doing us any favors by interjecting that in, but but even absent him. So I, I cling, I'm sure we all do, cling to the notion that, you know, this country is built on, um, you know, uh, enthusiastic participation of everybody in the process, everybody in the pool, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, that's the way this thing is supposed to work. And yet you can say that and people will say that and then the next sentence is, but let's look at the politics and see how this is going to play out. If you are a Republican senior citizen in Florida, you shouldn't be lined up at the polls. It's not safe for you. If you are, you know, in New York City, it might not be safe for you. What we're seeing now is that one of the hotbeds of, of COVID-19 activity in the country is at a, a meat plant in South Dakota it might not be safe for voters in South Dakota. This virus doesn't know red or blue. We don't know where it's gonna be in the fall. What we have to do is safeguard the process and give Americans, all Americans, a choice. Um, and there are things that we can do for that. Um, and I think mail voting is really where it starts. Um, and then you just have to say, okay, how do we make sure that it's safe? How do we make sure that it's secure, that everybody has access? And how do we try to keep it out of the sort of typical partisan politics? Um, one way to do that is to you know, make sure that election boards don't get overwhelmed, that we're planning ahead early, that everybody who wants a, a ballot can get one. What we just saw in Wisconsin was kind of a nightmare that started because 1.2 million folks in Wisconsin wanted an absentee ballot six times more than had ever requested one. And these underfunded, overwhelmed boards didn't have the ability or, or the capacity to get it done. So if we know that this is going to be the case in, in, in Florida, in, in, in Pennsylvania, in, in Texas, in all of these states in the fall, let's start doing the work. Let's start uh, uh, funding the process. Um, let's start staffing it. Let's start training people. Um, and let's get it done. We can do this, but there's 200 days left. It strikes me you may have written Unrigged a little too early because it'd be fascinating to revisit what we're going to go through in the next eight months and see how ordinary citizens, citizens respond to that challenge because 
because that's going to be the next chapter. <laughs> Planning for the second edition has begun already. That's right. I was just trying to... And this could be the new chapter in the paperback. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. Terrific. Dave Daly, author of uh, Unrigged. Uh, I, I know that it's available everywhere because I have my own copy, but best of luck with the book. Chris, thanks for joining me. <laughs> and, and Dave, we look forward to seeing you on the trail. Maybe in the Volkswagen. I am dying to get in that Volkswagen. I think that is so cool. Um, let's do it, guys. <laughs>